Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. This is Cynthia Chaplin, and today I have the enormous pleasure of having Alice Firing with me. Uh, she's joining me from New York today, and we are going to have a lot of fun talking about all of the wonderful writing that Alice has done over the years, her awards from James Beard and Louis Roderer and Gourmand, and her title, of Imbibe Magazine's Wine Person of the Year. There's a lot happening, and Alice has a particularly interesting perspective on natural wine that I want to explore as well. So welcome to the show, Alice. Thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. No, it's it's it, the pleasure's all mine, I assure you. I, I am very happy to say that I have been a fan of Alice's writing for quite a long time. And I was really excited when she introduced The Firing Line, the world's first independent natural wine newsletter during Hurricane Sandy, of all things, um, in 2013. So what, what got you to that point, Alice? Why did you decide to launch a newsletter at that point? Huh, well, it was uh, purely economics. I started blogging in 2004, one of the early wine bloggers, I guess. And after like nine years, and at that point, three books, I really didn't want to do all this work for free. I mean, like a lot of people who are blogging, you know, there's like, I needed to monetize. I had become too controversial. You know, I sacrificed quite a bit of freelancing assignments when I became a controversial wine writer. Obviously, I had to work. So basically, it was just economics. So uh, that's what happened. And I launched a Kickstarter. First of all, it's like, is anybody going to read this thing? And after the Kickstarter, where I reached my goal in less than a day, I said, I guess people want me to do this. So that's what happened. Well, let's let's just backtrack there for a second. You have described yourself as a controversial wine writer. Tell me why. I mean, I, I think some of our listeners will be very interesting to hear about some of the topics you've addressed. You know, you you looked into the whole sort of fraud, for want of a better word, um, the, the practice of putting additives in winemaking. That was way back in 2001, a, a big expose article for New York Times. Uh-huh. And you've carried on with, with those sorts of topics, saving the world from parkerization in 2008, which is also a controversial thing. So you've, you've described yourself as controversial. People have called you that as well. What encouraged you, Alice, to be this feisty, controversial person? You know, many, many wine writers take um, a more beautiful and luxurious approach to writing about wine, but you really went for the tough topics. 
How come? Well, back in the days of 2000, 2001, I was doing a lot more journalism. And it may seem a little bit naive, but when I wrote that story, I was like, wow, did you know this was happening? (laughs) You know, this is something that needs to be reported on. And I had no idea that it was going to uh, make me persona non grata in California. And it was really just a reported piece. I had no idea it was going to land with such an explosion. So let's just tell our listeners a little bit about about the article, because it was really a seminal article, and it really did um, smash open some, some fairly egregious practices. So Tell us where you got the idea. What happened? And it, it is true that those people coming into wine now with so much natural wine available, that the idea that even 20 years ago, this could at all be controversial would seem strange. So what happened was that, you know, I'm always a very difficult person for, and always had been for a publicist to pitch because, you know, I have a, a journalist you know, inborn cynicism. Oh, really? Why do you want me to write about this? No, I'm going to not write a puff piece about your client. What is the news here? But a publicist who knew me quite well said, Alice, I got a really good story for you. And it was not one of his clients. It was just something that he had learned, which is there is a company here called Enologics in California that if you sign up for their goods, they will, they claim they can help you get a 95 plus score from Robert Parker. Robert Parker, being at the time the world's most famous wine critic, was very well known for his 100-point system. And if you got 95 points or over, it was guaranteed financial success for the winery. So I just thought, wow, that is probably one of the most cynical things that I ever heard of. And I need to know what is the recipe that this guy is helping wineries, you know, like to to follow to in order to get those high scores. So I went and researched him, interviewed uh, Leah McCloskey and a couple of other people who were involved with reverse osmosis and all sorts of other kinds of technologies. And I talked to people doing microoxygenization and people who were just really very innocent about using these techniques, like what is the problem? You know, so you use microox, so you use reverse osmosis, so you're getting wine down to where you need it to be, or you're using, I talked to Scott Labs, and I talked about the various yeasts that can be deployed, and that in doing this, I learned about however you're going to count them, 72 plus whatever additives that one can use during the winemaking process that are perfectly legal. And, and don't have to be listed on the label, it should be pointed out. And do not have to be listed on the label at all. I mean, basically, at the time, since we were in print advertising, which is really no different than today, the romance of wine being made in the vineyard was what was sold to people when the reality was it was grown, grapes were grown in the vineyard, but it was made in the winery with a whole slew of um, machines and ingredients. So I learned what these devices and ingredients could do and how they affected the taste. And there were a lot of people who were quite proud about being in the article and even allowed themselves to be photographed. And honestly, at the time, I was still, wow. I was not, oh my God, do you know what they're doing? I was like, wow, there are some people who choose to make wine this way. Well, who are the people making wine the other way? So it was, I I was not as bombastic as people actually thought I was being in that piece. But yet what I did was that I let the secrets out of the bag in the New York Times, albeit in the business section, because that's really the only place the story could have run. Well, it, it was the original whistleblower story, really, in the wine industry, wasn't it? It was. 
it was the original whistleblower story. And afterwards, I was treated pretty much like a whistleblower. And as a freelance writer, you know, you're not making a lot of money anyway. But then I was, uh, you know, people were afraid of losing advertising because big, especially in the food and wine magazines, because all the big wineries did advertise, you know, the Gallows and the Broncos or, you know, the Mondavis, et cetera, et cetera. So that was basically the reaction how people were not, you know, very naively. I was like, wow, people are going to be really happy to hear the story. Well, yeah, some people were, but most people were pretty horrified. And that that reaction of horror made me realize I was onto something. And so I just started digging deeper and deeper and deeper and finding out what was behind it and why the fear and why, and who, who were the people making wine differently. And I embraced it because when you, as a journalist, if you're on the if you're on the scent of truth, you don't let it go. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think a lot of your work in those days uh, went a long way towards defining what you know, quote unquote, natural wine means. And you know, you've done a lot of work with um, discussing terms that are thrown around pretty casually, even now, you know, organic and, and things like that. So what was the next step after this article? And you're being, I think, very generous to some of your critics. You know, you were pretty lambasted for, for letting these secrets out of the bag. I actually got death threats. <laughs> really? Oh, my goodness. For wine, for wine. That's just, I know. you know, that is shocking. I, I won't ask who, but oh my goodness, that's just shocking. I mean, I, I remember it happening and I remember the, you know, the public lambasting, but wine is supposed to be something that, that is good for humanity. Death threats should not be in the same sentence. So I know. I, I apologize for humanity. Um, so, so what happened? So what happened next? So you, you embraced the people who were making wines the other way. I like putting it that way, the other way, uh, without these additives and machines and sort of technical tweaking. Well, it, after that, you might say at that point, even though I had been writing about wine for 10 years beforehand, that was the moment that I felt that I became a wine writer. That is the point that I started spending a lot of time in vineyards, where before I actually wasn't. And I asking questions, walking, learning about viticulture, the choices that can be made, and really following the people that were themselves tending the vines and making the wines with, you know, like no additives. It was really, it is what I realized I had been self-selecting to drink, but not understanding why. Right. So um, these people were, and it was back in those days, it was a much smaller world. It was very easy to know everything and everybody. And it was very exciting because it felt like a secret, a secret little world, even though I was doing what journalists do is tell everybody about the secret little world. Because people should know these wines needed to be available. These wines needed to be understood. And that's what I did. I started, so that was 2001, 2003, 2004, I started, I knew that I wanted to write a book. Um, and up until then, I was really very much, really, my freelance career took a real, real setback. I can't remember whether I was still doing freelance hospital work. I was a dance therapist. A dance therapist. Hang on a minute. I did not know that. You were a dance therapist. That's so yes. interesting. In hospitals. In hospitals, a movement dance therapist. So I worked with substance abusers, oddly enough, and 
um, on psychiatric units and in rehab and with the elderly. And how did that inform? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining that that goes really hand in hand with this, you know, sort of attraction to more natural winemaking. Well, I don't know. That's kind of interesting. Sometimes when I was working with substance abusers, I would think silently, why can I do this? And you can't, because there were a lot of alcoholics along with the heroin addicts and the cocaine addicts. But it does help your, I mean, basically as a journalist, you're using your observational skills. You're reading the room. But I would teach or I would use nonverbal techniques in therapy with people who do not necessarily have words available to them for various reasons. So it could be strict medical reasons like uh, aphasia, stroke patients, or it could be people who are just so defended in their words, they're not using it. So, And if you're dealing with somebody who's extremely psychotic, they're coming out with word salad. So they're really only using movement as a way of communication. So that's really where it's really is movement therapy, not dance therapy. So there are a bunch of exercises where you use movement as communication. It's that's the simplest way to put it. That is absolutely fascinating. So you actually were helping people to find yes. their own voice when they had lost it. That's, that's, that is a fascinating aspect of your career that I was completely unaware of. So slightly off the track, but I, I really do like how it is so parallel to other things that were going on in your life at that time. But it was, you know, I was eager to become a full-time writer and I didn't know if that was ever going to happen. So I started the blog thinking I'm going to take notes on the blog. And out of taking notes on my blog came my idea for the Battle for Wine and Love or How I Saved the World from Parkerization. It was, uh, it, it's an interesting story. I was just going to write a book about natural wine, or we didn't call it natural wine, about these real wines. And an agent turned me down saying, you know, this isn't the book that you want to write. And I got very, very, and so, you know, I can't do anything with this book. And she was very nasty to me. And I got very angry and I got angry at myself and at her. And I remember going home saying to hell with that. You know, she's right though. This is not the book that I want to write. I'm going to write the book that I want to write. So it basically gave me the license and the, the drive to write a book in my own voice. I didn't think that anybody wanted my voice. Like who was I to write a book in first person about my journey? Like I felt I hadn't earned it. But I formed this idea of how the wines that I loved were being robbed from the world, how they were becoming extinct. And so who was behind it and what is being done about it? And so I did a deep dive into the regions that I felt were most at risk and how Robert Parker's fame was responsible for the extinction of wines like authentic Barolo and authentic authentic Chiantis and authentic Burgundies and, and so on in Rioja and so uh, Champagne, all that stuff. Yeah, I think you were really one of the first people to call out the the power of parkerization as something that right. was negative. And, and that really turned the wine world on its head, not least of which for the fact that you were a woman and, and you know, having had this expose article a couple of years earlier that kind of put you in the doghouse, so to speak. Right. And so I just went back in again. <laughs>
<laughs> exactly. So what, where were the territories that you thought were being really marginalized and at risk of being lost forever during the whole Parker period? Why did I, th- I threw in Champagne there because of the way LVMH was just taking over Champagne, which was, and, and the vineyards, which was how actually it was a very interesting chapter that I felt didn't get enough attention, but certainly Burgundy and the Northern Rhone. I basically went to my favorite areas, Champagne, Burgundy, let's say Rioja. And Barolo, of course, as you said. Well, yeah, that was because basically it, I set it up memoir-like and the first wine that made me love wine was a Barolo. Which one? And so I, it was a Giovanni Scanavino and it was a 1968 bottle that I had in 1980. Amazing. And so searching for Scanavino was about what happened to Barolo, the whole, you know, Barolo story and how the love of new barrels and technology moved in and there were very few people making you know, basically it was they were partisans so that was I only really chose a few few areas but by doing that I was able to take on the death of certain techniques you know it was the celebration of destemming where Previously, you know, Barolo, I mean, Barolo, well, actually, going back to Burgundy had been made whole cluster. Basically, wines everywhere had been made whole cluster. Absolutely. It was really a modern thing. And basically, how it's like kind of, and those stems are kind of like an aspirin for wine in many ways. It's good in hot years, it's good in cold years. And how they just make it ageable. But so I didn't take on the world. I took on certain regions where I saw his influence really powerful. And what was the reaction that it was such a famous, um, a, a famous piece of, of your work? What was the reaction? What happened, as you said, back in the doghouse, but in some ways it was worse. Well, people were scared. Yeah, yeah, it was worse. It, it, in some ways, well, in one way it was good because it, you know, it, I wrote a book. I had a book. It's always <laughs> great to have a book. <laughs> And it was odd. You know, when I think about it, I got a New York Times book review that was so exciting to land a book review for my first book. But, you know, they why did they choose a male reviewer who's in a pissing contest with me? You know, it's only looking back that I realized... That wasn't an accident, Alice. Absolutely not. That was not. But, you know, it's it took this long for me to realize how people really try to silence me my whole life. And certainly since that book. I have, people have been, you know, there are certainly, I've got my, got my fans, I've got my readership, I've got my public, but I have been, <laughs> I have been silenced. It's, um, it's kind of, I don't like thinking about it this way, but I think looking back, I realize the truth in that. There's definitely some truth in that. I, I think there is. Yeah. Uh, if, a, if a man had written this book, I think they would have been celebrated. Thank you for listening to Italian Wine Podcast. We know there are many of you listening out there, so we just want to interrupt for a small ask. Italian Wine Podcast is in the running for an award, the best podcast listening platform through the Podcast Awards, the People's Choice. Listener nominations is from July 1st to the 31st, and we would really appreciate your vote. We are hoping our listeners will come through for us. So if you have a second and could do this small thing for us, just head to italianwinepodcast.com from July 1st to the 31st and click the link. We thank you and back to the show.
that's an interesting, that's a very interesting sort of theory to posit. If a man had written that book, what would have happened? I suspect you're absolutely right. The reaction would have been completely different. Right. And you, you weren't sort of really, you weren't really in the wine world other than as a wine journalist. So I suspect that had something to do with it as well. You weren't a sommelier or a master of wine. So they went after you with all those guns. We were in 2008 when the book came out, we were in the pre celebrity sommelier zone. <laughs> you know, so thank God, the good old days. <laughs> I know the good old days, you know, when I, I could see it coming. I said, oh, sommeliers aren't chefs, but now sommeliers are chefs. Uh, so, but it was like most of my work, it has, a, oddly enough, it has a big impact, but it, the book didn't sell very much. And possibly, I think it's because unless you're writing a beginning wine book, people don't want to read about wine. That's interesting as well. That's, do you think that's still true today? It's very much true. That's very interesting as well. You know, I, I work for, for an organization that, of course, publishes wine books. And the, the fact is, they are writing wine books is not a money-making proposition at all. Right. So, but you kept on. I mean, you, you brought out Naked Wine just a few years later. Great. Um, and just a few years later, and when you look at it, it seems like I've had a book every two to three years. Every three years, I guess. I'm a writer. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? I keep on thinking about what else I can do, but I don't think there's... Well, I think you're very good at what you do. I don't think you should change track at this point. <laughs> Let's talk about Naked Wine for a minute, because that was really a seminal work and still is viewed that way by a lot of people in the industry. Thanks. It was really quite remarkable that it came out for a second time. They have put out a different version of it recently. I was like, wow, okay. Um, I wrote Naked Wine. It came out in 2011. And the reason that I wrote it is that I could see all the controversy around the new natural wine and how big companies were going to co-opt it and make watered-down natural wine or industrial natural wine. And I felt the origin story needed to be out there. Absolutely. So true. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, thinking, okay, this book is going to sell. You know, this one can be a textbook, which I think it should be a textbook in UC Davis. I don't know why it's not. I know both uh, The Battle for Wine and Love and Naked Wine is taught at Slow Food University, but so that's it. It's the origin story. I think a lot of wine students who are doing you know, self-study refer to your works a lot more than you'll ever know. I certainly did. That is good to know. Thanks. Yeah, I felt like it was a moral obligation to put it out there. So when they start messing up the other wines, when the industrial wines come for us, there will be a book that people could reference about what it meant, what it was, and why, and why it was threatening. Exactly. So why why was it so threatening? What what's your opinion? Why you know, what was the underlying problem that people felt so scared of this concept about? Well, I think it's uh, you know, basic business. If something is being called natural, that means the alternative is not natural. Though I think that's wrong. I think there's natural enough. <laughs> so but everything in this world is black and white. And the big companies who are then going to be, oh my God, if they if we have to go to an ingredient list, we're gonna have to we're gonna be added. Who's gonna wanna buy a wine? Well, you could say who wants to buy a food with a long ingredient list and you know, there's still a lot of fast food being sold. So I think there's always a market for that. But um that's basically it. If something is natural, that means something is not natural. And you know, like authentic beauty is always, um, anything authentic is always, always challenging someone who is making a living off of fabrication. Yep. 
Exactly, exactly. And I think people are frightened by by someone who is willing to stand up and, and challenge that because they generally do tend to be wealthy, successful, large corporations. And, and that's, you know, that is a big lion to face down. Yeah. So basically, I wanted to document that hopefully, like when the greenwashing started, which it happened immediately, and deception, I mean, marketing is all about deception. So of course, if somebody is blowing the cover on marketing, people are threatened. Also, there are people threatened by, I've, I have all of these wines in my wine cellar. I spend thousands of dollars on all of these 98-point wines in my wine cellar. Are you telling me that I wasted my money? Yeah, that's actually a very good point. Not only individual, you know, private buyers, but restaurants and Michelin star places that have gigantic wine cellars filled with these, you know, award-winning wines. You don't want those devalued, absolutely. Right. And so they're on a personal level and there there was that as well. And so you know, people on wine bulletin boards and stuff, I mean, they love to, you know, chew on my body and rip it to shreds. Sometimes I go and I see what they say about me and it's pretty horrific. Bad side of uh, internet and everything is available whenever it's two in the morning and you want to uh, chastise yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to go for one of the higher points. So in 2013, after Naked Wine, you were named Imbibe Magazine's Wine Person of the Year. That had to be a really good moment like of validation considering... It was sort of everything that had happened in the past, you know, just few years from, you know, from 2001 with the, you know, with the expose article up to, you know, 2011, that's, that's only a few years. Um, And then to win wine person of the year, how did that change your perspective or did it? Well, it made me realize that the tide definitely was changing, that there were people out there, a lot of people who wanted something different get a lot of validation. You take what you can get. And that was lovely. I was a wine person of the year. How lovely. (laughs) I Nothing changed. I think that I was still, I was speaking to the trouble. um, And I think my whole life, my wine writing was, I've been wanting to reach an audience outside of wine. I've been trying to show people that they, they should take wine seriously. If you're not drinking wine, you like take a look at this this world. It's fascinating. You want part of this. And I've been always trying to get a readership that wasn't just in the wine world. I'm a wine educator, so I do love the aspect that wine has something for everyone. My husband doesn't drink, but he loves the story of wine and the you know the the long thread through all the cultures around the world and all the way back to, you know, very beginning of humanity. And I think that's something that does get lost in most wine writing. You're you're absolutely right there. People get very caught up in the aromas and the characteristics and they forget the storytelling. Yeah. So so next after that <laughs> came came Dirty Wine Guide. We went from naked wine to dirty wine guide. What was what was the what was the movement there? What was the progress? Well, after naked wine I'm going to tell you the real story about that. Tell me the real story. That's what we want to hear. So I, um, I didn't want to write about, I didn't want to write wine books anymore. I mean, I couldn't afford to. I mean, people weren't reading them. People weren't buying them. And I wanted to go back to writing. I had, um, I want, 
I was trying to sell a memoir about escaping a serial killer. And my then agent tried to shop it around. He wasn't wild about it. He shopped it to somebody, I forgot which publishing house. And this guy said, we don't want this kind of writing from Alice. We want another wine book. And I got really pissed off. And I was like, okay, you want another wine book? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a proposal for a wine book that's so geeky, you will never be able to sell it. <laughs> Backlash. Right. And this is the wine book that I didn't want to write, and I thought, I'm only going to write this for a big advance because it was going to be a pain in the ass to write and very technical. But there are a lot of, not a lot, but there's some books on on wine geology, but they're geology books. They're not about how it affects the vineyards or the wines that we drink. And as wine drinkers who love soil conversations, this is the book that we wanted. So that's the book that I proposed. And uh, it was a hard sell. And it probably was a hard sell because naked wine didn't sell very much. And actually, I was offered a ridiculous advance, absolutely insulting, ridiculous advance. And I remember I said, forget it. I'm not writing it. You can, you know, like go to hell, Peter. That was my agent. And I said, I'm not doing it. And we're, I'm screaming at him. He was, he's like convincing me that I'll make it back on royalties. This is a guy who had a, a 10 room apartment on Madison Avenue. And I'm like, I'm in a five floor walk up on Elizabeth Street. And I'm screaming at him, you want to give me the money to live on, live for a year? Yeah, then I'll do it. And I'm screaming at him, you do it. You take the money. You write the book. <laughs> it was only then that he went back and he demanded more money. It's like, and I'm like, quickly, like, he got more money, enough that I thought, okay, fine. That's when Pascaline said, I'll help you with the book. You know, you know, I'll be your research assistant. We can, I'll be there with you. And um, Pascaline Le Peltier said, just, you know, give me some book credit. And, um, and so... That's the way I did it. Well, and it's it's a great book. Again, I mean, your humility is um, is is shrouding the fact that Dirty Wine Guide, as you said, is is about subsoils and and geology and vineyards and things. And Pascaline Le Peltier is a master psalm, so it was a it was a great combination. But I think that book was probably the first, if not potentially still the only comprehensive sort of geology book relating to wine that's in English. Here, we work with Professor Attilio Scienza, who does a lot of wine writing about geology, but it's all in Italian. So luckily, I speak Italian and read Italian, but even I find it very hard to plow through that. And Dirty Wine Guide um, was was very different from that. I mean, how, what what approach did you take towards this book that you didn't want to write in the first place? Well, that I I wanted it to be readable. I wanted it to be a good read. I wanted to give people enough science that scientists wouldn't be pissed off at me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and enough accurate science, but just enough to give a drinker some tools to have fun and to look at. Oh, you know what? I think I like wines from granitic soil. Let's go and figure out. And it's not, it really, there's, and to actually say, you can't draw the linear wines from granitic soils are going to have that salty edge. You can't do that. However, there are some generalities that you can. You can say it could mostly. It depends on how the soil is farmed and it depends on climate and winemaking techniques. And that's why there are so many variables. However, if you drink enough, all of a sudden you go, huh, 
because personally, I love granite. Love, love, love granite. Yeah. Well, and I think that book gave a lot of people who weren't, you know, sort of intense wine students, gave them a tool to understand I like wines from this type of soil. So I'm now going to look around the world and see where that soil is. And I will try some new wines from different places because I suspect I will like them. That was a connection that no one had made before. Well, that's a connection that we lost. That's another kind of thing that I've been beating the drum about. When the, and I think this is in my foreword, when the whole, they used to call them fighting varietals, came out. Basically, we're selling a wine by Merlot and Pinot. And when people started ordering by grape, we lost the sense of place. And basically, we set up this thing where wine can come from anywhere and just drink a grape. Well, that's not the way I started drinking. That's no fun. <laughs> no, and that's that's not the way that you know that I like to drink either. I love wines that speak of of their home. Well, I like this because what it's kind of coming full circle. So you you gave the voice back to the to the grapes and to the places they were from, rather than you know as as you said, people were just blanket ordering. I like Merlot. I'll just have that, mm -hmm. and and not not really listening to that backstory. So that I I like the fact that 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 happened in that book. Um, I'm just gonna before I let you go, I just want to ask you what you think now about natural wine you know you you've said it's a process and a philosophy and it, it nowadays it comes in all shapes and sizes and it's not all cloudy and fizzy and tastes like you know cider vinegar what do you think the future of natural wine is now because it is it is a thing um i'd say you know it's a trendy thing people have jumped on that bandwagon i like the word you used before sort of the the greenization of of wine what do you think the actual future of actual, true, honest, natural wine is? Well, we are in transition right now, as we have been in a period of transition for a few years with the popularity, with the new generation of wine drinkers coming into this wine for the first time. And this is probably their only experience with wine. So we're at a point where natural wine is still being reduced to style, seeing a lot of clear bottles, not the best thing for natural wine, so people could show off the color and entice the drinker. Also a lot of sloppy winemaking, a lot of sloppy winemaking, not making me very happy. The future, I think, is that we're going to get through this phase. Wine education is not going by the wayside. People will grow up. They will start experimenting with different wine. They're going to go and find wines that are still natural, but made traditionally with structure, with ageability, maybe not just a party drink. And I don't know, I'm not that much of a crystal ball reader right now, but I think, or shall I say, I hope we get to a point where it's just we're returning wine that, that basically fine wine or great wine will be natural wine. It'll just be made traditionally, and natural wine will be maybe it'll just be referred to zero zero instead of you know just no sulfur at all, maybe it'll be just low sulfur. I'm not quite sure, but where we are now with rampant faults, I think mouse out of control that to me makes wine undrinkable I think we're gonna go into a golden era of beautiful wines. Well, I really hope so. I I 
I really, really hope you're right. I would love to see that happen, particularly in Europe, where the the history behind these wines is is you know something that people know more about now than perhaps they did in the past. Yeah, I hope so. In the book that comes out in August, you know, it's kind of funny, and I I'm hoping that's where I see wine going. I don't. I make a point that you know all the books are in the all the wines that are mentioned in the book are are natural, just because that's what I drink, but. Not all of them are hardcore natural. Um, it's not really a natural wine book. So what is this book coming out in, in August? Everybody will be on the edge of their seat right now. Okay. So it's called To Fall in Love, Drink This. And it is, it, it's going back to my let me get people to read about wine. So it is a memoir in 30 essays. Oh, wow. And uh, so when I talked about writing a memoir about the serial killer, we have two two essays about the serial killer in that but every essay has a wine essay attached to it so the first one is about my grandfather teaching me how to smell as a little girl but also about the loss of unconditional love and the wine essay attached to that is about aromatic wines right right so Basically, you read all about smelling and like how how evocative that can be. It is, yeah, so evocative. It's just it's it's sort of the, a celebration of wines made from muscat. Who does that? Who has the nerve to celebrate muscat? Honestly, no one. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, I'm hoping that it gets reviewed as a memoir and as well as in the wine world and just a general memoir that can entice some people to uh, explore wine in a different way. Well, I am looking forward to that. I can't wait to read it. And I'm so grateful you took time out of your day to talk to me today, Alice. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Hope to meet you. Me too. I'm looking forward to that. I haven't been in Vernon a long time. <laughs> we'll get you back here soon. We will get you back here. Okay, great. So thanks a lot. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast, and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. Hi guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.